Chapter 3 of The Catholic Church and Conversion This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Marie Christian The Catholic Church and Conversion by G. K. Chesterton The Real Obstacles In the last chapter, I have dealt in a preliminary fashion with the Protestant case in the conventional, controversial sense. I have dealt with the objections which I suspected very early of being prejudices, and which I now know to be prejudices. I have dealt last and at the greatest length with what I believe to be the noblest of all the prejudices of Protestantism, that which is simply founded on patriotism. I do not think patriotism is necessarily prejudice, but I am quite sure it must be prejudice, and nothing else but prejudice, unless it is covered by some common morality. And a patriotism that does not allow other people to be patriots is not a morality, but an immorality. Even such a tribal prejudice, however, is a more respectable thing than most of the rags and tatters of stale slander and muddle-headedness which I am obliged to put first, as the official policy of the opposition to the church. These stale stories seem to count for a great deal with people who are resolved to keep far away from the church. I do not believe they ever counted with anybody who had begun to draw near to it. When a man really sees the church, even if he dislikes what he sees, he does not see what he had expected to dislike. Even if he wants to slay it, he is no longer able to slander it. Though he hates it at sight, what he sees is not what he looked to see. In that place he may gain a new passion, but he loses his old prejudice. There drops from him the holy armor of his invincible ignorance. He can never be so stupid again. If he has a ready mind, he can doubtless set his new reasons in some sort of order, and even attempt to link them with his lost tradition. But the thing he hates is there and the last chapter was wholly devoted to the study of things that are not there. The real reasons are almost the opposite of the recognized reasons. The real difficulties are almost the opposite of the recognized difficulties. This is connected, of course, with a general fact, now so large and obvious, but still not clearly comprehended and confessed. The whole case of Protestantism against Catholicism has been turned clean round and is facing the contrary way. On practically every single point on which the Reformation accused the Church, the modern world has not only acquitted the Church of the crime, but has actually charged it with the opposite crime. It is as if the Reformers had mobbed the Pope for being a miser, and then the Court had not only acquitted him, but had censored him for his extravagance in scattering money among the mob. The principle of modern Protestantism seems to be that so long as we go on shouting, to hell with the Pope, there is room for the widest differences of opinion about whether he should go to the hell of the misers or the hell of the spendthrifts. This is what is meant by a broad basis for Christianity and the statement that there is room for many different opinions side by side. When the Reformer says that the principles of the Reformation give freedom to different points of view, he means that they give freedom to the Universalist to curse Rome for having too much predestination, and to the Calvinist 
to curse her for having too little. He means that in that happy family, there is a place for the no-popery man who finds purgatory too tender-hearted, and also for the other no-popery man who finds hell too harsh. He means that the same description can somehow be made to cover the Tolstoyan who blames priests because they permit patriotism, and the diehard who blames priests because they represent internationalism. After all, the essential aim of true Christianity is that priests should be blamed, And who are we that we should set narrow dogmatic limits to the various ways in which various temperaments may desire to blame them? Why should we allow a cold difficulty of the logician, technically called a contradiction in terms, to stand between us and the warm and broadening human brotherhood of all who are full of sincere and unaffected dislike of their neighbors? Religion is of the heart, not of the head. And as long as all our hearts are full of hatred for everything that our fathers loved, we can go on flatly contradicting each other forever about what there is to be hated. Such is the larger and more liberal modern attack upon the church. It is quite inconsistent with the old doctrinal attack, but it does not propose to lose the advantages arising from any sort of attack. But in a somewhat analogous fashion, it will be found that the real difficulties of a modern convert are almost the direct contrary of those which were alleged by the more ancient Protestants. Protestant pamphlets do not touch even remotely any of the real hesitations that he feels, and even Catholic pamphlets have often been concerned too much with answering the Protestant pamphlets. Indeed, the only sense in which the priests and propagandists of Catholicism can really be said to be behind the times is that they sometimes go on flogging a dead horse and killing a heresy long after it has killed itself. But even that is, properly understood, a fault on the side of chivalry. The preacher, and even the persecutor, really takes the heresy more seriously than it is seen ultimately to deserve. The inquisitor has more respect for the heresy than the heretics have. Still, it is true that the grounds of suspicion or fear that do really fill the convert, and sometimes paralyze him at the very point of conversion, have really nothing in the world to do with this old crop of crude slanders and fallacies, and are often the very inversion of them. The short way of putting it is to say that he is no longer afraid of the vices, but very much afraid of the virtues of Catholicism. For instance, he has forgotten all about the old nonsense of the cunning lies of the confessional, in his lively and legitimate alarm of the truthfulness of the confessional. He does not recoil from its insincerity, but from its sincerity, nor is he necessarily insincere in doing so. Realism is really a rock of offense. It is not at all unnatural to shrink from it, and most modern realists only manage to like it because they are careful to be realistic about other people. He is near enough to the sacrament of penance to have discovered its realism, and not near enough to have yet discovered its reasonableness and its common sense. Most of those who have gone through this experience have a certain right to say, like the old soldier to his ignorant comrade, Yes, I was afraid, and if you were half as much afraid, you would run away. Perhaps it is just as well that people go through this stage before discovering how very little there is to be afraid of. In any case, I will say little more of that example here, 
having a feeling that absolution, like death and marriage, is a thing that a man ought to find out for himself. It will be enough to say that this is perhaps the supreme example of the fact that the faith is a paradox that measures more within than without. If that be true of the smallest church, it is truer still of the yet smaller confessional box that is like a church within a church. It is almost a good thing that nobody outside should know what gigantic generosity and even geniality can be locked up in a box, as the legendary casket held the heart of the giant. It is a satisfaction, and almost a joke, that it is only in a dark corner and a cramped space that any man can discover that mountain of magnanimity. It is the same with all the other points of attack, especially the old ones. The man who has come so far as that along the road has long left behind him the notion that the priest will force him to abandon his will. But he is not unreasonably dismayed at the extent to which he may have to use his will. He is not frightened because, after taking this drug, he will be henceforward irresponsible. But he is very much frightened because he will be responsible. He will have somebody to be responsible to, and he will know what he is responsible for. Two uncomfortable conditions which his more fortunate fellow creatures have nowadays entirely escaped. There are, of course, many other examples of the same principle, that there is indeed an interval of acute doubt, which is, strictly speaking, rather fear than doubt, since in some cases at least, as I shall point out elsewhere, there is actually least doubt when there is most fear. But anyhow, the doubts are hardly ever of the sort suggested by ordinary anti-Catholic propaganda, and it is surely time that such propagandists brought themselves more in touch with the real problem. The Catholic is scarcely ever frightened of the Protestant picture of Catholicism, but he is sometimes frightened of the Catholic picture of Catholicism, which may be a good reason for not disproportionately stressing the difficult or puzzling parts of the scheme. For the convert's sake, it should also be remembered that one foolish word from inside does more harm than a hundred thousand foolish words from outside. The latter he has already learned to expect, like a blind hail or rain beating upon the ark. But the voices from within, even the most casual and accidental, he is already prepared to regard as holy or more than human. And though this is unfair to people who only profess to be human beings, it is a fact that Catholics ought to remember. There is many a convert who has reached a stage at which no word from any Protestant or pagan could any longer hold him back. Only the word of a Catholic can keep him from Catholicism. It is quite false in my experience to say that Jesuits or any other Roman priests pester and persecute people in order to proselytize. Nobody has any notion of what the whole story is about who does not know that, through those long and dark and indecisive days, it is the man who persecutes himself. The apparent inaction of the priest may be something like the statuesque stillness of the angler, and such an attitude is not unnatural in the functions of a fisher of men. But it is very seldom impatient or premature, and the person acted upon is quite lonely enough 
to realize that it is nothing merely external that is tugging at his liberty. The laity are probably less wise, for in most communions the ecclesiastical layman is more ecclesiastical than is good for his health, and certainly much more ecclesiastical than the ecclesiastics. My experience is that the amateur is generally much more angry than the professional, and if he expresses his irritation at the slow process of conversion or the inconsistencies of the intermediate condition, he may do a great deal of harm, of the kind that he least intends to do. I know in my own case that I always experienced a slight setback whenever some irresponsible individual interposed to urge me on. It is worthwhile, for practical reasons, to testify to such experience, because it may guide the convert when he, in his turn, begins converting. Our enemies no longer really know how to attack the faith, but that is no reason why we should not know how to defend it. Yet even that one trivial or incidental caution carries with it a reminder of what has been already noted. I mean the fact that whatever be the Catholics' worries, they are the very contrary of the Protestants' warnings. Merely as a matter of personal experience, I have been led to note here that it is not generally the priest, but much more often the layman, who rather too ostentatiously compasses sea and land to make one proselyte. All the creepy and uncanny whispers about the horror of having the priest in the home, as if he were a sort of vampire or monster intrinsically different from mankind, vanishes with the smallest experience of the militant layman. The priest does his job, but it is much more his secular co-religionist who is disposed to explain it and talk about it. I do not object to laymen proselytizing, for I never could see, even when I was practically a pagan, why a man should not urge his own opinions if he liked, and that opinion as much as any other. I am not likely to complain of the evangelizing energy of Mr. Hilaire Belloc or Mr. Eric Gill, if only because I owe to it the most intelligent talks of my youth. But it is that sort of man who proselytizes in that sort of way, and the conventional caricature is wrong again when it always represents him in a cassock. Catholicism is not spread by any particular professional tricks or tones or secret signs or ceremonies. Catholicism is spread by Catholics, but not certainly, in private life at least, merely by Catholic priests. I merely give this here out of a hundred examples as showing once again that the old traditional version of the terrors of popery was almost always wrong, even where it might possibly have been right. A man may say if he likes that Catholicism is the enemy, and he may be stating from his point of view a profound spiritual truth, but if he says that clericalism is the enemy, he is repeating a catchword. It is my experience that the convert commonly passes through three stages or states of mind. The first is when he imagines himself to be entirely detached, or even to be entirely indifferent, but in the old sense of the term, as when the prayer book talks of judges who will truly and indifferently administer justice. Some flippant modern person would probably agree that our judges administer justice very indifferently. But the older meaning was legitimate and even logical, and it is that which is applicable here. The first phase is that of the young philosopher 
who feels that he ought to be fair to the Church of Rome. He wishes to do it justice, but chiefly because he sees that it suffers injustice. I remember that when I was first on the Daily News, the great liberal organ of the nonconformists, I took the trouble to draw up a list of 15 falsehoods which I found out by my own personal knowledge in a denunciation of Rome by Messrs. Horton and Hawking. I noted, for instance, that it was nonsense to say that the Covenanters fought for religious liberty when the Covenant denounced religious toleration, that it was false to say the Church only asked for orthodoxy and was indifferent to morality, since, if this was true of anybody, it was obviously true of the supporters of salvation by faith and not salvation by works, that it was absurd to say that Catholics introduced a horrible sophistry of saying that a man might sometimes tell a lie, since every sane man knows he would tell a lie to save a child from Chinese torturers, that it missed the whole point in this connection to quote Ward's phrase, make up your mind that you are justified in lying and then lie like a trooper. For Ward's argument was against equivocation or what people call Jesuitry. He meant when the child really is hiding in the cupboard and the Chinese torturers really are chasing him with red-hot pinchers, then and only then, be sure that you are right to deceive and do not hesitate to lie. But do not stoop to equivocate. Do not bother yourself to say, the child is in a wooden house not far from here, meaning the cupboard. But say the child is in Chiswick or Chimbora Zoo or anywhere you choose. I find I made elaborate notes of all these arguments all that long time ago, merely for the logical pleasure of disentangling an intellectual injustice. I had no more idea of becoming a Catholic than of becoming a cannibal. I imagined that I was merely pointing out that justice should be done even to cannibals. I imagined that I was noting certain fallacies, partly for the fun of the thing, and partly for a certain feeling of loyalty to the truth of things. But as a matter of fact, looking back on these notes, which I never published, it seems to me that I took a tremendous amount of trouble about it if I really regarded it as a trifle. And taking trouble has certainly never been a particular weakness of mine. It seems to me that something was already working subconsciously to keep me more interested in fallacies about this particular topic than in fallacies about free trade or female suffrage or the House of Lords. Anyhow, that is the first stage in my own case, and I think in many other cases, the stage of simply wishing to protect papists from slander and oppression, not consciously at least, because they hold any particular truth, but because they suffer from a particular accumulation of falsehood. The second stage is that in which the convert begins to be conscious not only of the falsehood, but the truth, and is enormously excited to find that there is far more of it than he would ever have expected. This is not so much a stage as a progress, and it goes on pretty rapidly, but often for a long time. It consists in discovering what a very large number of lively and interesting ideas there are in the Catholic philosophy, that a great many of them commend themselves at once to his sympathies, and that even those which he would not accept have something to be said for them, justifying their acceptance. This process, which may be called discovering the Catholic Church, 
is perhaps the most pleasant and straightforward part of the business, easier than joining the Catholic Church, and much easier than trying to live the Catholic life. It is like discovering a new continent full of strange flowers and fantastic animals, which is at once wild and hospitable. To give anything like a full account of that process would simply be to discuss about half a hundred Catholic ideas and institutions in turn. I might remark that much of it consists of the act of translation, of discovering the real meaning of words, which the Church uses rightly and the world uses wrongly. For instance, the convert discovers that scandal does not mean gossip, and the sin of causing it does not mean that it is always wicked to set silly old women wagging their tongues. Scandal means scandal, what it originally meant in Greek and Latin, the tripping up of somebody else when he is trying to be good. Or he will discover that phrases like counsel of perfection or venial sin, which mean nothing at all in the newspapers, mean something quite intelligent and interesting in the manuals of moral theology. He begins to realize that it is the secular world that spoils the sense of words, and he catches an exciting glimpse of the real case for the iron immortality of the Latin mass. It is not a question between a dead language and a living language, in the sense of an everlasting language. It is a question between a dead language and a dying language, an inevitably degenerating language. It is these numberless glimpses of great ideas that have been hidden from the convert by the prejudices of his provincial culture that constitute the adventurous and varied second stage of the conversion. It is, broadly speaking, the stage in which the man is unconsciously trying to be converted. And the third stage is perhaps the truest and the most terrible. It is that in which the man is trying not to be converted. He has come too near to the truth and has forgotten that truth is a magnet with the powers of attraction and repulsion. He is filled with a sort of fear, which makes him feel like a fool who has been patronizing popery when he ought to have been awakening to the reality of Rome. He discovers a strange and alarming fact, which is perhaps implied in Newman's interesting lecture on Blanco White and the two ways of attacking Catholicism. Anyhow, it is a truth that Newman and every other convert has probably found in one form or another. It is impossible to be just to the Catholic Church. The moment men cease to pull against it, they feel a tug towards it. The moment they cease to shout it down, they begin to listen to it with pleasure. The moment they try to be fair to it, they begin to be fond of it. But when that affection has passed a certain point, it begins to take on the tragic and menacing grandeur of a great love affair. The man has exactly the same sense of having committed or compromised himself, of having been in a sense entrapped, even if he is glad to be entrapped. But for a considerable time, he is not so much glad as simply terrified. It may be that this real psychological experience has been misunderstood by stupider people, and is responsible for all that remains of the legend that Rome is a mere trap. But that legend misses the whole point of the psychology. It is not the Pope who has set the trap, or the priests who have baited it. The whole point of the position is that the trap is simply the truth. The whole point is that the man himself has made his way towards the trap of truth, 
and not the trap that is run after the man. All steps except the last step he has taken eagerly on his own account, out of interest in the truth, and even the last step, or the last stage, only alarms him because it is so very true. If I may refer once more to a personal experience, I may say that I, for one, was never less troubled by doubts than in the last phase, when I was troubled by fears. Before that final delay, I had been detached and ready to regard all sorts of doctrines with an open mind. Since that delay has ended in decision, I have had all sorts of changes in mere mood, and I think I sympathize with doubts and difficulties more than I did before. But I had no doubts or difficulties just before. I had only fears, fears of something that had the finality and simplicity of suicide. But the more I thrust the thing into the back of my mind, the more certain I grew of what thing it was. And by a paradox that does not frighten me now in the least, it may be that I shall never again have such absolute assurance that the thing is true, as I had when I made my last effort to deny it. There is a postscript or smaller point to be added here to this paradox, which I know that many will misunderstand. Becoming a Catholic broadens the mind. It especially broadens the mind about the reasons for becoming a Catholic. Standing in the center where all roads meet, a man can look down each of the roads in turn and realize that they come from all points of the heavens. As long as he is still marching along his own road, that is the only road that can be seen, or sometimes even imagined. For instance, many a man who is not yet a Catholic calls himself a medievalist. But a man who is only a medievalist is very much broadened by becoming a Catholic. I am myself a medievalist in the sense that I think modern life has a great deal to learn from medieval life, that guilds are a better social system than capitalism, that friars are far less offensive than philanthropists, but I am a much more reasonable and moderate medievalist than I was when I was only a medievalist. For instance, I felt it necessary to be perpetually pitting Gothic architecture against Greek architecture, because it was necessary to back up Christians against pagans. But now I am in no such fuss, and I know what Coventry Patmore meant when he said calmly that it would have been quite as Catholic to decorate his mantelpiece with the Venus de Milo, as with the Virgin. As a medievalist, I am still proudest of the Gothic, but as a Catholic, I am proud of the Baroque. That intensity which seems almost narrow because it comes to the point, like a medieval window, is very representative of that last concentration that comes just before conversion. At the last moment of all, the convert often feels as if he were looking through a leper's window. He is looking through a little crack or crooked hole that seems to grow smaller as he stares at it, but it is an opening that looks towards the altar. Only, when he has entered the church, he finds that the church is much larger inside than it is outside. He has left behind him the lopsidedness of lepers' windows, and even in a sense the narrowness of Gothic doors, and he is under vast domes as open as the Renaissance, and as universal as the republic of the world. He can say, in a sense unknown to all modern men, certain ancient and serene words, Romanus sivusum, I am not a slave.
The point for the moment, however, is that there is generally an interval of intense nervousness, to say the least of it, before this normal heritage is reached. To a certain extent, it is a fear which attaches to all sharp and irrevocable decisions. It is suggested in all the old jokes about the shakiness of the bridegroom at the wedding, or the recruit who takes the shilling and gets drunk, partly to celebrate, but partly also to forget it. But it is the fear of a fuller sacrament and a mightier army. He has, by the nature of the case, left a long way behind him the mere clumsy idea that the sacrament will poison him or the army will kill him. He has probably passed the point, though he does generally pass it at some time, when he wonders whether the whole business is an extraordinarily intelligent and ingenious confidence trick. He is not now in the condition which may be called the last phase of real doubt. I mean that in which he wondered whether the thing that everybody told him was too bad to be tolerable is not too good to be true. Here again the recurrent principle is present, and the obstacle is the very opposite of that which Protestant propaganda has pointed out. If he still has the notion of being trapped, he has no longer any notion of being tricked. He is not afraid of finding the church out, but rather of the church finding him out. This note on the stages of conversion is necessarily very negative and inadequate. There is in the last second of time, or hair's breadth of space, before the iron leaps to the magnet, an abyss full of all the unfathomable forces of the universe. The space between doing and not doing such a thing is so tiny and so vast. It is only possible here to give the reasons for Catholicism, not the cause of Catholicism. I have tried to suggest here some of the enlightenments and experiences which gradually teach those who have been taught to think ill of the church to begin to think well of her. That anything described as so bad should turn out to be so good is itself a rather arresting process, having a savor of something sensational and strange. To come to curse and remain to bless, to come to scoff and remain to pray, is always welcome in a spirit of wonder and the glow of an unexpected good. But it is one thing to conclude that Catholicism is good, and another to conclude that it is right. It is one thing to conclude that it is right, and another to conclude that it is always right. I had never believed the tradition that it was diabolical. I had soon come to doubt the idea that it was inhuman, but that would only have left me with the obvious inference that it was human. It is a considerable step from that to the inference that it is divine. When we come to that conviction of divine authority, we come to the more mysterious matter of divine aid. In other words, we come to the unfathomable idea of grace and the gift of faith, and I have not the smallest intention of attempting to fathom it. It is a theological question of the utmost complexity, and it is one thing to feel it as a fact and another to define it as a truth. One or two points about the preliminary dispositions that prepare the mind for it are all that need be indicated here. To begin with, there is one sense in which the blackest bigots are really the best philosophers. The church really is like Antichrist, in the sense that it is as unique as Christ. Indeed, if it not be Christ, it probably is Antichrist. 
but certainly it is not Moses or Muhammad or Buddha or Plato or Pythagoras. The more we see of humanity, the more we sympathize with humanity, the more we shall see that when it is simply human, it is simply heathen. And the names of its particular local gods or tribal prophets or highly respectable sages are a secondary matter compared with that human and heathen character. In the old paganism of Europe, in the existing paganism of Asia, there have been gods and priests and prophets and sages of all sorts, but not another institution of this sort. The pagan cults die very slowly. They do not return very rapidly. They do not make the sort of claim that is made at a crisis, and then make the same claim again and again at crisis after crisis throughout the whole history of the earth. All that people fear in the church, all that they hate in her, all against which they most harden their hearts and sometimes, one is tempted to say, thicken their heads, all that has made people consciously and unconsciously treat the Catholic Church as a peril is the evidence that there is something here that we cannot look on at languidly and with detachment, as we might look on at Hottentots dancing at the new moon or Chinamen burning paper in porcelain temples. The Chinaman and the Taurus can be on the best of terms on a basis of mutual scorn. But in the duel of the church and the world is no such shield of contempt. The church will not consent to scorn the soul of a coolie or even a tourist, and the measure of the madness with which men hate her is but their vain attempt to despise. Another element, far more deep and delicate and hard to describe, is the immediate connection of what is most awful and archaic with what is most intimate and individual. It is a miracle in itself that anything so huge and historic in date and design should be so fresh in the affections. It is as if a man found his own parlor and fireside in the heart of the Great Pyramid. It is as if a child's favorite doll turned out to be the oldest sacred image in the world, worshipped in Chaldea or Nineveh. It is as if a girl to whom a man made love in a garden were also, in some dark and double fashion, a statue standing forever in a square. It is just here that all those things which were regarded as weakness come in as the fullness of strength. Everything that men called sentimental in Roman Catholic religion, its keepsakes, its small flowers and almost tawdry trinkets, its figures with merciful gestures and gentle eyes, its avowedly popular pathos, and all that Matthew Arnold meant by Christianity with its relieving tears. All this is a sign of sensitive and vivid vitality in anything so vast and settled and systematic. There is nothing quite like this warmth, as in the warmth of Christmas, amid ancient hills hoary with such snows of antiquity. It can address even God Almighty with diminutives. In all its varied vestments, it wears its sacred heart upon its sleeve. But to those who know that it is full of these lively affections, like little leaping flames, there is something of almost ironic satisfaction in the stark and primitive size of the thing, like some prehistoric monster, in its spires and miters like horns of giant herds, or its colossal cornerstones like the four feet of an elephant. It would be easy to write a merely artistic study of the strange externals of the Roman religion, which should make it seem as uncouth and unearthly as Aztec or African religion. 
It would be easy to talk of it as if it were really some sort of mammoth or monster elephant, older than the Ice Age, towering over the Stone Age. His very lines traced, it would seem, in the earthquakes or landslides of some older creation, his very organs and outer texture akin to unrecorded patterns of vegetation and air and light, the last residuum of a lost world. But the prehistoric monster is in the zoological gardens and not in the Natural History Museum. The extinct animal is still alive, and anything outlandish and unfamiliar in its form accentuates the startling naturalness and familiarity of its mind, as if the sphinx began suddenly to talk of the topics of the hour. The super-elephant is not only a tame animal, but a pet, and a young child shall lead him. This antithesis between all that is formidable and remote, and all that is personally relevant and realistically tender, is another of those converging impressions which meet in the moment of conviction. But of all these things that come nearest to the actual transition of the gift of faith, it is far harder to write than of the rationalistic and the historic preliminaries of the inquiry. It is only with those preliminary dispositions toward the truth that I claim to deal here. In the chapters that follow, I propose to touch upon two of the larger considerations of this class, not because they are in themselves any larger than many other immense aspects of so mighty a theme, but because they happen to balance each other and form a sort of antithesis, very typical of all Catholic truth. In the first of the two chapters, I shall try to point out how it is that when we praise the Church for her greatness, we do not merely mean her largeness, but in a rather notable and unique sense, her universality. We mean her power of being cosmos and containing other things. And in the second chapter, I shall point out what may seem to disturb this truth, but really balances it. I mean the fact that we value the Church because she is a Church militant, and sometimes even because she militates against ourselves. She is something more than the cosmos, in the sense of completed nature or completed human nature. She proves that she is something more by sometimes being right where they are wrong. These two aspects must be considered separately, though they come together to form the full conviction that comes just before conversion. But in this chapter, I have merely noted down a few points or stages of the conversion, considered as a practical process, and especially those three stages of it through which many a Protestant or agnostic must have passed. Many a man looking back cheerfully on them now will not be annoyed if I call the first patronizing the church, and the second discovering the church, and the third running away from the church. When those three phases are over, a larger truth begins to come into sight. It is much too large to describe, and we will proceed to describe it. End of chapter 3